0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Long before the pandemic raised the curtain on issues of workplace flexibility, today's guest was leading the way in changing how law firms think about flexibility and how they can best use it to drive performance, productivity, and innovation. Menar Morales is President and CEO of the Diversity and Flexibility Alliance. The DFA is a think tank dedicated to helping organizations, predominantly legal organizations, create inclusive cultures that advance diversity and flexibility in order to attract and retain top talent. Cyfarth and the DFA have worked together for many years. The DFA has been kind enough to recognize several SyFarthians over the year for their work in inclusion and flexibility workplaces. Most recently, DFA has partnered with Cyfarth on our Belonging Project. And I've known Menar for a number of years and have admired her work. It was great to catch up with her at this moment in history when the future of work is top of mind for organizations of all kinds. Listen to today's podcast to learn why Menar uses the term holistic flexibility to differentiate between the reduced hours approach to flexibility traditionally used by many law firms. Why she says flexibility must be de-gendered, de-parented, and de-stigmatized. And finally, what advice Menar gives to her clients as they contemplate implementing hybrid work policies into work models based on co-location. It was a fascinating and timely conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Menar, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you spending some time with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Excited for our conversation.
0: Yeah. So let's start a little bit about talking about the Diversity and Flexibility Alliance. Some of our viewers may not be familiar with it. If if so, shame on them. (laughs) But maybe tell us a little bit about the Alliance and what its mission is and how it accomplishes that mission.
1: Sure. So we are a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and we look at the intersection between diversity and flexibility with a broad look at diversity and looking at the intersection when we talk about flexibility, talking about things like the future of work, which is a very hot topic right now. Workplace flexibility. And really our goal is helping organizations build inclusive cultures that leverage talent and leverage flexibility and create an environment where everybody can succeed.
0: Let's spend just a second on the term flexibility, because I think some organizations may think of it as just where you're doing your work, but you've historically taken a more holistic view of flexibility. Talk to us a little bit about how you view flexibility holistically.
1: So we actually, we'd call it holistic flexibility, which is there's not one size fits all and that you have to be looking at things like not only where people do work, but when people do work, what the percentage of time that they're doing the work for. So historically within the legal profession, I think flexibility generally just referred to reduced hours. I think about when I was just starting looking at these issues back in 2006, a lot of flexibility was really referencing reduced hours and how to make reduced hours work in firms whereas as we've continued to evolve and looking at flexibility our belief is that one size doesn't fit all and that reduced hours is an important component of anybody's flex initiative within their organizations but that you also need to look at full-time flex options things like remote work things like flex time right where do i do i shift my hours and i have the flexibility to do asynchronous work not only just during core, perhaps, business hours, but there's also a flexibility that I have to choose when I do my work, not just where I do my work.
0: So you you started looking at these issues in 2006, thereabouts, I think you just said. And certainly flexibility is, it's certainly having a moment now, that's for sure. Um, But in 2006, you were way ahead of the curve in terms of the impact of flexibility and its role, particularly in the legal profession. What sort of led you to begin (laughs) to focus on this? Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: So I started as an employment litigator. And right when I came out of law school, I worked in-house and then quickly shifted to working in a firm as an employment litigator. And when I had my first son looked at what the options were for me in wanting to continue to litigate, I was passionate about litigating. And I also wanted to spend a certain amount of time with my newborn son. And at the time, part-time or reduced hours wasn't really that much of an option. And so my own experience of having limited options available to me to continue to litigate and do what I wanted to do in my personal life led me to start thinking about, well, why is that not possible? And for me, what I ended up doing was leaving and finding a place where I could, you know, I was offered to do things like opinion letters and and do some of the other kind of work, but I really still did want to do, and I felt like I could still do litigation, albeit under a reduced hour schedule. So I pieced together that. I, you know, I found a way to do that. And I found a way to teach. And then I started doing work in this space. And women would come up to me and say, you know, if I could have done it the way that you did it, I wouldn't have left. And that led me down to, well, why does that have to be true? <laughs> why do we have to leave? And started to look at that intersection between
0: flexibility and diversity. Is that what caused you to start the alliance?
1: Yeah, so I started the Alliance in 2012. I had been doing the work starting in 2006 under a different umbrella, but really that's what led me to starting the Alliance in 2012 of looking that there are definitely organizational solutions, just as much as there are individual strategies.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what the trend lines you saw leading up into the pandemic, because I think the past 18 months has to have been a a watershed moment for these issues in terms of flexibility. Going into the pandemic, what trend lines were you seeing in terms of the willingness of our audience is going to be largely focused on law. So my questions will be law firms and law departments and company. What trend lines were you seeing? What was the pace of adoption and what were the issues you were seeing?
1: flexibility was highly stigmatized right this idea that flexibility was really a trade-off for performance or a trade-off for commitment which we've long been saying it's not right flexibility done right is a driver of performance it's a driver of productivity it's a driver of innovation it's a driver of talent and ultimately a driver of profitability So what we were seeing before was just a strong resistance and a misunderstanding, really. You know, what we say to all of our members, we're membership based and we have a lot of law firms and corporations as members, is that I can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to do what we say, but I can guarantee that you're having the right conversation about what you should do. Right? Because so much of the conversations in law firms and in corporations, frankly, sometimes were tied up in a misunderstanding about what flexibility actually was and what it wasn't, right? And that the conversation around flexibility as a work-life balance tool. That is something that the pandemic, I think, has now highlighted for everybody. We've long said flexibility is not a work-life balance tool. Boundaries are a work-life balance tool, but flexibility isn't. And we've seen that. Everybody has had ultimate flexibility during this time. And we have found that we have been working longer and harder than we ever have before. So that point has been made quite clear to everybody in a better way than I ever could have demonstrated. But that mistake that flexibility was, oh, this is a work-life balance. And we don't want to be seen as a lifestyle firm. So we don't want to embrace flexibility, right? This is an accommodation really just for mothers. And we keep saying you have to de-gender, deparent, and destigmatize flexibility in order for it to work. It has to be seen as something that's available to everybody. And frankly something that everybody needs, but it's not one size fits all. So everybody needs it in a different form and a different shape, dependent upon that individual and the business needs.
0: We'll come to sort of how the pandemic affected that analysis here in a moment, but I'm curious, particularly before the pandemic, it always struck me that there was a lot of stereotyping, emotion, generational differences. I don't know exactly what words I'm using, but there was a there was a subtext of this conversation that made it difficult, I think, to have the flexibility conversation on business terms. Uh-huh. What's best for the business, what's best for the people, because I got up at three o'clock in the morning to go get on the airplane. So can they? Yeah. Did you have the same experience, or was I? Do I have that wrong?
1: No, absolutely. And it was it was getting people to understand that this is a business imperative tied to how you operate as an organization, but also some of the myths. You know, I would I would always say I would talk to CEOs, I would talk to chairs, I would talk to managing partners, and the same kind of resistance would come up. And it would we we categorized it into five buckets, if you will. Right? It was a fear of loss of control. I'm suddenly not gonna know where anybody is and we can't operate if we don't know where everybody is and that you know, Pandora's box is gonna open and we're gonna have no sense of control of any, anything. Loss of contribution would come up. People would say, well, if they're working in all different places, how are we gonna really know that they're working? And we have to unpack that for people to say, actually, how do you know that they're working now? Right? In the sense that if people are in your office, just because they give you the appearance of sitting at their desk, Head down, you don't know what they're head down doing when we have a highway in front of us, right? The technology that's afforded to us on a laptop and the internet, we could be doing anything and but make it the appearance of working. So getting people to understand that FaceTime really wasn't the way, and I hope FaceTime isn't the way that you evaluate whether somebody is working. Loss of connection is constantly mentioned, right? Where's the mentoring? How are people gonna be? interacting with each other if people are working on a flexible schedule of some sort they're, we're going to lose that connectivity that is really crucial to the way that we do work without understanding that we actually build connections in all sorts of ways right and we can use technology as an extension of the workplace to build help build connection and in fact what the pandemic has shown us as we're doing focus groups and talking to a lot of firms is finding that connection in some ways increased during the pandemic, connection to clients, right? The introduction of video, how many times were we always on phone calls with people and not seeing a face, right? And the way that we have been able to connect more with clients, we've certainly seen it as a connection with our members, right, I can get on a video call with somebody and see them more and more, that builds our sense of connection. And frankly, the people who value mentorship, who value connection, find ways to do it regardless of the situation. They'll find a way to connect with people via video. They'll find a way to make sure that that mentoring continued to happen because they placed a strong value on it. So when you are committed You're going to find a way regardless of the situation. And some have said, actually, my ability to mentor across offices, across locations increased during the pandemic. I could hold a video chat with more people than I ever was able to do before, or I decided to hold office hours so that people knew that they could contact me. I would have sort of an open lunch Zoom every Friday, they would say, one partner said to me. And so that way people knew that they could just hop in for no other reason than to say hello, to get some time with me, right? They replicated office hours in academia that we see. And they said, I used to just mentor the people who were right next door to me in my office or on the same floor, as the people who saw, and especially we heard this from practice group leaders that had multiple offices that say, now I actually connect with people and associates across my offices in ways that I never had before. So if you're intentional about it, you can counteract these things. And then the last two are that sort of loss of collaboration. Similar experiences, there were some people that reported greater levels of collaboration during this time, greater engagement and an ability to connect because they also use technology, right? If you have a document camera, you can look at a document that's on your desk without having to share your screen. You can invest in tools, whiteboarding, et cetera, to replicate collaboration that could be happening.
0: Let me ask you about that, Monar, before you get to the last piece, because one of the things I've heard and I, I've, I've experienced myself is there are these fortuitous moments before or after meetings where people are walking down the hallway together, going to the meeting or before the meeting, where sometimes that's where the best ideas yeah. come up with. How do you replicate those in a virtual yeah. environment?
1: And I don't wanna downplay sort of the benefits of some of that, right? Just because we can talk about the benefits of virtual doesn't mean there are still sort of benefits to the in-office, the in-person interaction, but a couple of things to note about those sort of fortuitous moments. One is to pay attention to who had those opportunities, who had the partner that just walked by someone's office. Oftentimes, People from underrepresented backgrounds actually didn't get a lot of those benefits. They didn't have people randomly walking up to them and talking to them. And So we have to think about sort of there were some disadvantages to leaving everything up to serendipity like, to those moments that mm-hmm. he interacted versus can we recreate some of those intentional opportunities for after meetings and to hold a little bit of space for some casual interactions that can happen right sometimes where we can put people in and out of breakout groups even for 2 minutes each whenever we're doing any programming we incorporate breakout groups and we switch people up and we give them periods of times one to focus on a particular question but also as an opportunity to get to know other people we ran one session where we were helping a firm launch a mentoring initiative And the way that we did a quick connecting activity, two minutes each, we said, first, we gave people one minute. We said, go on a treasure hunt in your house. Find something of meaning or value to you that is reflective of who you are and come back and share. We dropped them into a breakout, two minutes each, learned more about people than they ever have working in the same office together, right?
0: That's a fabulous idea.
1: Yeah. Two minutes each. That's all it took. In five minutes, I created connection instantaneously in that room for people who that never otherwise would have happened.
0: You know, it's an interesting point because you do video calls and oftentimes people have, their dog is in the background or there's something in the background that shows you a sense of their personality or who they are that you wouldn't get in an office.
1: Absolutely. I was on a, a video call just the other day yesterday with a firm and the COO had a guitar in the background and said, and then the person on the call said, you know, our CEO used to play in a band and opened up for all these various, like I would have never known that <laughs> about right. interest because his guitar happened to be visible in the background, right? So if you're curious, you'll find out more information about people. And right. it's given us a window into people's lives.
0: Right. Let me back up to something. You, you used a term, we're now talking back in the pre-pandemic days we're talking about the need to deparent yeah flexibility which to me is a was a critical effort now everybody is flexible workplace but how would you have those conversations because a lot of the initial sort of flexibility i think we you made the point was reduced working for mothers
1: yeah. So we would talk about that need to deparent parent in the sense that if you just looked at this as something for caregivers, for parents, and more so the conversation was really characterized as really just something for mothers, then it will always be stigmatized versus that need to say everybody needs it. But also, if we want to get more women into leadership, we also need to have opportunities for more men to be involved in care. And one of those ways to happen is to allow that flexibility to say it's not just mothers who need that kind of flexibility, but men who want to be involved as well. I mean, one of the things I hope that comes out of the pandemic is that the negotiations at home have also changed in the same ways that the negotiations at work need to change. And there were so many men I would talk to who would say, I had no idea. I had no idea that all that was involved. I had no idea how much I wasn't doing. Or also, I knew I had some flexibility, and I never used it to do things that I now don't want to go back to missing out on. I've seen the moments that I missed out on before, and I didn't almost recognize it. And now that I've seen it, I do want to play a larger role, and I want to have that opportunity to do so. So I think there was a lot of pushback when men asked to take leave, for example. One other area, sort of under the umbrella of flexibility that we work on, is caregiving leave. And the Mm -hmm. need to degender that. The need to say, for caregiving, it's not about primary or secondary. Don't create hierarchy where no hierarchy should exist, right? Give everybody the leave to care for their children. Women get extra time to recover from childbirth. That's different. But when we're just talking about leave to care for the child, that should be given equally to men and women to take.
0: So I presume one of the largest challenges you had pre-pandemic was, as you said, these these five fears, you know, we've always done it this way. Yeah. It's worked for us. You know, we've got to change. And then March 2020 comes and in 24 hours, the world changes.
1: Yeah. You know, my all last right. trip before that happened was a roundtable of managing partners trying to convince them of the business case around flexibility. And then a week <laughs> later, they all had to go remote. <laughs> so... It's sort of ironic that that would have been my last.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting coincidence, isn't it? So now uh, let's fast forward to today. Who knows where we are in terms of the pandemic, if we're coming out of it, if we're in the middle of it, or if we're still at the start, who knows? But more and more businesses are having conversations about what does the world look like when we don't have to be 100% virtual? Yeah. How have those conversations changed and what are people struggling with, Manar?
1: So I will say, you know, you mentioned it. I used to always say before the pandemic, our biggest competitor was not other organizations doing the work that we did was the status quo. It it was our biggest barrier had been the status quo. We've always done it. So one of the things that the, the pandemic has changed is the fact that the status quo is no longer a barrier. And that need to understand that it has also actually allowed it to be less stigmatized, right? So I keep having conversations with managing partners and CEOs who will say to me, who would have thought this works? Now I have to chuckle internally and say, well, I, we did, right? <laughs> I built right. It up, I it. <laughs> But it allowed a larger group of people who had never experienced flexibility to understand that it works. They, A large amount of people who would have thought can't possibly be productive working from home. This would never work for me. Have been introduced in ways that we could have never replicated before, right? For the fact that everybody had to do it, you didn't have a choice. You had to figure out how to manage. So that has influenced the way, there's still a lot of fear out there, I will tell you. I mean, we're still, this hasn't necessarily completely changed some of the conversations we're having in firms that still feel a sense of, well, we just need to go back now. We need to come back and go back. But, there's an
0: emotional component to that, isn't there?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's some, a lot of personal feelings tied into that where people have to separate what their own feelings are to understanding what is for the greater good and how everybody is feeling. I've, I, I've said during the pandemic, it's not my saying, but it was a saying that resonated with me during the pandemic, a quote that I heard around, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And that really was something that we had to wrap our heads around that. For some leaders who come to me and say, I am so anxious to get back. I'm so excited about getting back. I have to remind them that coming back to the office is causing some people to be anxious and that we have to be thinking about how do we look at this, not just from our own personal view of whether we think we can work from home or we work better in an office to What's the business model that's going to take us into the future five to 10 years from now? And those are the firms that are having those conversations that are being more successful at this. Take us out of the immediate of an excitement to want to be back, to see faces. We all want that. We've all been isolated in ways of also that desire for human connection is something that a lot of people crave. That doesn't mean that that influences what that model needs to be, right, for where we go and what's the best model to take us into the future.
0: So, how do you advise your clients, many of these are large organizations. And I I love that expression, we're all in the same storm but not in the same boat. It's a very individualistic analysis in terms of people's fears and emotions and what they get out of it. How do you manage that in a large organization where you are trying to achieve some level of consistency and everything can't be on a one-to-one basis? How do you balance the needs to adapt to the individual fears versus an organizational dynamic
1: yeah so partly is to one understand that this is requiring organizational change (laughs) this is change management at its highest level of what you're required to do and i think the mistake that i see organizations make is that they think it's all about a policy just tell us what our policy should be. Let's just start there. What what should the policy be, right? That's what everybody, oftentimes the phone calls that we're getting are starting with that. And I say, you actually need to back up and prepare your environment for what that policy should be and take a couple of steps back. And that first step is, you have to establish the compelling purpose for why this is important for you as a firm, and not just as a firm, but as leaders. So we're working with a lot of executive committees and we walk them through these exercises around, why is this important for you as leaders? Why is this important for you as a firm? Why is this important for all of your employees, not just the attorneys, all of your employees? And then ultimately, why is this also important for your clients? And think about that at all different levels, because that changes the conversation, right? It moves it beyond sort of the individual perspective on this to what is best for the organization at all of these levels, to be thinking about that. And then how do we reimagine and create a shared vision around what's possible for us? And one of the exercises we walk leadership through is thinking about, you know, regardless of how the future of work changes for you as an organization, what has to stay the same? and then be really intentional around thinking about all of those things, then you can design. Our third stage of our framework is to recalibrate, and then you can design the initiative. And along the way, even in, in getting you to those sort of two, what we say, you know, that reflect stage and that reimagine stage is getting organizations to be really macro clear. And then you can be micro easy on the rest of the three steps, which is how do I design? How do I integrate it? It's for the best, for the greatest level of success into the culture. And then ultimately, how do I measure the impact? And then to remember, this is going to be an iterative process. But I will tell you, wait and see doesn't work. Right? The idea of rolling out these policies or saying we're just going to bring everybody back and wait and see, that's going to fail, right? Because you're not preparing the environment to make this successful. I think the important thing, Steve, about the pandemic too, is everybody saw that flexibility could be successful. And I keep reminding people that that, that was flexibility in a pandemic. So people had a lot of competing demands going on in their lives mm-hmm. during this time. Sometimes I hear from people say, well, they didn't have competing demands because you know they didn't have vacation, they couldn't go anywhere. And I'm like, There were people who had huge amounts of competing demands. Our systems collapsed. Our social structures collapsed. Our social in your firms, in your organizations, right? Systems collapsed. And there was an MIT professor that said, when systems collapse, people rise. And we saw that happen. Mm -hmm. We should reward people that, that that went well. But it was also done in a way where firms were not prepared you didn't have the systems in place. You didn't have the technology in place. You didn't have the training in place. You didn't have an alignment of people, policies, and practices, yet you still were successful. Imagine if you were intentional about it, how successful you could
0: be. Oh my goodness. Being intentional about it. That's, that's a new idea for a law firms.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the other mistake that I see, right? They're rolling out these hybrid policies and some are doing amazing jobs at what the policy looks like but they're dropping those policies in a co-location model. And they're not thinking about the implications of a hybrid policy. So it's not enough to draft the hybrid policy and just drop it in a system that is really built on success of everybody being co-located in some fashion together. You actually just have to change the whole system. You have to think about How does that mean we're going to train? How are we going to mentor? How are we going to collaborate? How are we going to hold meetings in a hybrid environment? The idea of those meetings before, I'm sure you remember them, right? It's just a speaker box in the middle. You might have experienced those.
0: I've experienced those.
1: (laughs) Yes. And somebody calls in, you don't know if they're still on the phone. You don't know, right? I don't even know what they're called. That can't be what hybrid 2.0 looks like, Right. Right. That actually means that if you're going to invite people to a hybrid meeting, then you want to make sure that the experience of the people who are dialing in remote is the same as the experience of the people in the room, and that you don't just create an environment where people are spectators because that'll fail.
0: There's a strikes me. There's a communication training challenge here. I've I've seen it talked about in terms of organization and managers in an organization what they need to learn and how to operate. But there's also a different way of operating if you are a staff person an employee or an associate you know participating in those how do you take advantage of a hybrid working environment are you seeing that i assume that's part of sort of the more holistic change management process you're talking about is looking at all the stakeholders and what they need to do to be successful
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always intuitive, right? Like, I think that there is something about making sure that you set people up for the individual strategies for success. And then you set people up for understanding how to lead in a hybrid environment, how to manage in a hybrid environment. But also, it's not just about those individual strategies, it's also making sure that you're leveling the playing field of everybody understanding what flexibility is and what it isn't, right? Making sure that people are really clear on the myths on the business case on why it's important so that everybody is being able to think about it. The mindset shift is a lot of work, right? Like that actually Mm -hmm. a lot of the training really involves not just the tactical strategies, but really about understanding what that different mindset is. And I actually think working in a hybrid environment and something that we have been bringing to our law firm clients, especially, is to understanding that working in a virtual environment is a skill that is going to be necessary for the way that you engage with your clients, too. Mm-hmm. More companies are seeing it. Yeah,
0: what, what is the role of the, for a law firm, obviously clients are their bread and butter, they're their <laughs> lifeblood. What's the role of the, what's the client conversation? What's the impact of this has on clients and their working relationships? How do you factor that into these analyses?
1: Yeah, I actually think it's going to improve client relations, right? The idea that we can do more video calls, you can connect with me. I don't always have to travel to your office, right? There are more opportunities for me to engage with clients in ways that they don't have to pay the travel fees, right? Where they think twice before involving their lawyers, perhaps in internal meetings where it would be helpful to have them there because they don't want to think about the expense of bringing them to the office, right? There's lots of opportunities to improve that. But I also think using and leveraging technology to do business development in ways of being able to connect more readily, to have a virtual coffee, not saying that that's going to replace the in-person interaction with people, right? That should still happen. There are still going to be those dinners and the various ways that you engage with clients, but use technology to leverage as much interaction as you can with clients. And we're seeing that happen. But for clients, it's transparent and seamless as I said, flexibility is not a trade-off for performance, so it will never impact from a performance perspective what the kind of performance clients need. But you also have to train for that. There are times where we're hearing from firms where they'll say, you know, an associate got on a call with a client and they didn't have their camera on, right? That are, Those are training opportunities too to say, you know what, if you are in an environment where you don't encourage those kinds of interactions, right, that idea of, People who say, in order for me to be effective, I need the person in front of me. And I used to, pre-pandemic, say, are your clients in front of you? And they would say, no. I say, are you effective? They'd say, yes. I say, okay. So, (laughs) right. We have to get over this idea of like, in order to be effective, we need the person right in front of me. But also learning how to be effective via video is also a skill that you are going to more and more need everybody to be able to do that because more and more clients will require some of the video interaction. And you don't want the first time the, you know, associate shows up, you know, doesn't turn on their camera or the partner doesn't turn on their camera or the partner doesn't know how to look in the camera and doesn't know how to operate, right? That all of these things be happening with clients as opposed to, we are so adapted doing this. We know how to do it and we can seamlessly transition from in-person to remote.
0: Yeah, you would think at this point in the pandemic, we'd know those things, but they do still happen. It's sort of amazing. As you're having these conversations, as you're going in to law firms or legal departments, do you see people bring their own preconceptions, their notions that you folks have to deal with, sort of get them to this more analytical place? Are you seeing different perspectives being brought based on age generations or locations or people's past experiences, what are the things you're seeing that you need barriers you need to break down?
1: I think that mindset barrier is the most important. And I'm starting to see there used to be more generational lines around it. I think the more that the exposure that has happened for more to understand the need for it, then I'm seeing all sorts of generations being more willing to adopt it. But it is about understanding that it requires a different way of us doing things. And sometimes we're around generational lines. What I'll see is somebody saying, you know, what was so important for me was the apprenticeship model of being able to watch a person do something, to be able to witness how a person did to have that face-to-face conversation. So that's where I start to see the generational lines where to say, but you know what? Younger generations have grown up with being able to communicate quite effectively electronically, right? That they understand how to use electronic communications in ways that they are more comfortable sometimes than in that face-to-face. So, so it's not just about saying the younger generations have to figure out how, you know, this is the way to be successful, but can we also shift the way that we were successful, to be thinking that was my path because of what I was, the environment I was in and what we were afforded. We didn't have that kind of technology. And that now that we have that kind of technology, we understand that my path isn't the only path for the way that we connect, for the way that we collaborate, right? I, I think that that is important. I remember when my first son went off to college, a friend of mine said, learn Snapchat. I said, what do you mean? I don't I don't have time to learn Snapchat. She said, you want to communicate with him? Learn Snapchat. And you know what? She was like, I'll show you. Take 10 minutes. She showed me how to do it. And I remember the first time he went off, you know, we would be texting, we would call And then one time he didn't respond. And I was like, I'm going to snap him. You know, in 30 seconds, he would respond every time I snapped. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Sometimes we have to figure out how to communicate (laughs) on the ways that most people are effective communicating.
0: Sometimes you got to meet people where they are.
1: Yeah. And I think that is the most important thing with understanding with firms. It's not just about associates meeting partners. It's about partners meeting associates where they are too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. As people begin to bring folks back probably after Labor Day as we deal with things. How do you get them started down this journey you've described? Particularly flesh out a little bit more how you get over this culture fear. Yeah.
1: Loss of culture is a big one, right? That's one of Mm -hmm. the biggest fears that we experience is everybody says loss of culture. And the response I have is tell me how you define culture. Because the thing about it is I will often find that executive committees that leadership teams, and this happens in corporations as well, will throw around the term culture, but don't really know how to exactly define it. (laughs) So I say, and there's a saying, it's not mine, culture follows structure, right? So we can create the structure that you need in order to create the kind of culture you want, but tell me the kind of culture that you have, and then design for flexibility to meet that. So some firms will say, you know, our culture is one firm, Great. If your culture is one firm, then I hope you're rolling out a flex initiative that makes sure that everybody has the same experience. And then therefore you should be avoiding that leader specific culture that often happens, which is if I get to work with a leader who embraces flexibility, my experience is very different from the leader who says, everybody has to be in this office and you want to succeed here. I better see you every day. You want to get work from me. I better see you. I better be able to collaborate with you in person all of the time. That's not one firm, then. You're creating cultures of uh, pockets of resistance and pockets of acceptance, and that goes against your culture of what you say you are, which is one firm, right? You know, And so you can use culture to say, let's be intentional about how we create that culture and let's design for it to make sure that that doesn't happen and that, in fact, flexibility enhances it.
0: One of the opportunities, and you touched on it a little earlier, that working Virtually or working in this type of environment offers is it expands the talent base from which you can draw outside of your physical location. The challenge is that somebody can be hired and in a location where there's no physical presence and work and have no personal connection, no one on one meeting time with people in the organization. And I hear that reflected in a fear over this loss of culture how do we build those connections? And you touched on some of the strategies. Maybe you could just spend a little bit of time talking a little bit more about how you strategize around building those connection points.
1: I think it's about looking at how do we replicate anything that we think we're losing, right? So I think you, you even in the way that you talked about somebody being in a remote location, just because we're allowing people to work in a location where we don't have a physical office does not mean that we expect them to be isolated, right? And so I think it's about making sure to say, no, we actually still expect that there's some office you're going to fly to, right, and be able to build all of those things that require us to be successful. Because if you just say to somebody, you can do this, but we're actually not going to integrate you into the firm. (laughs) We're not going to make sure you have those relationships. And relationships are currency in law firms. Like, we have to make sure that you do this. So it's about saying to somebody, yes, you can. And we expect that you find ways and we will support you in finding ways to build one-on-one connections, to have time with the people set up time on calendars where you're gonna have those meeting times. You have to drive that and we'll also support you in driving that, right? There is agency there on the individual who's choosing to work remotely to make sure that they're being integrated as much as there is a responsibility on the part of the firm to make sure that that's happening. So I think it's about thinking about this differently, and say, it's not that you don't have to build these connections. It's just you're going to build them in different ways. You might have more virtual coffees, but you're going to have to find time where you can also have opportunities to set time on someone's schedule with no agenda. And we also have to tell our leaders and people on the firm that we need to allow for time that's put on our calendar with no set agenda to do that mentoring, to do that kind of building of connection that needs to happen.
0: That's fabulous advice. We're running out of time. But one last question, Manar. When you get on the phone with a managing partner or a chief legal officer who's struggling with these issues, what's the first piece of advice that you give them?
1: It's to understand the why. As I said, you know, it's amazing the amount of time that I spend on the mindset piece of it. I know we've mentioned this a couple of times, but unless I know what the real problem is, why, what's getting in the way? So we spend a lot of time with that first call to say, tell me what's getting in the way, right? Where are your challenges? Then we can solve for the right problem, but I need to know where people are getting stuck, right? Where Where is the biggest hurdle for you to get over? And we talk about what are the obstacles? What are the barriers for making this work? And then let's address all of those things because it does require a level of intentionality around you have to be strategic with these initiatives. You have to be intentional with these initiatives. It's not just pushing a button on a a new policy and sending out an email and saying, this is suddenly how we're going to do this. But I also encourage them to look for the bright spots. What worked well about this past year and a half? Because what we're trying to do in this hybrid model is to say we're bringing together the best of both worlds. right? What worked well during this time? What efficiencies were gained? It's amazing for us to talk to. We're running a lot of focus groups, and what we're finding is all of the efficiencies that have been gained during this time, all of the new ways of doing things that people would have never otherwise tried that are more efficient, more effective. How do you hold on to all of those things and also capture what was great about being in the office, right? We can have the best of both worlds. And that's the goal is getting every organization to get the best of both worlds.
0: That's a great place to end it. Menar, thank you so much for spending time. For those of you that want more information on the Diversity and Flexibility Alliance, go to their website. They've got references to papers and studies and other podcasts, and it's a host of information. And I encourage you to reach out directly to Menar or to the folks in our organization on these issues. Manar, thank you very much for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Likewise, Steve. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.